Hello, and welcome to the Amsterdam Mamas podcast, bringing you interviews, conversations, and tips about all things parenting in Amsterdam and beyond. For international families, we're your voice in the village. I'm Catherine Peretta. And I'm Donna Bardsley. And today on the podcast, we're featuring an interview from the new Hiraith podcast on the subject of migration and the search for home. We also hear from our director, Amy McCarthy, about advertising in our Facebook group. So stay with us. The Amsterdam Mamas podcast is produced with help from proceeds from our partner, Booking.com. Not only is Booking the leading accommodation website worldwide, where you can find family-friendly hotels, apartments, and more, along with verified reviews from other family travelers, they're based right here in Amsterdam and have partnered with Amsterdam Mamas to help us help you. Use the link booking.com slash Amsterdam Mamas to book your next holiday accommodation and we'll get a portion of the reservation value, which in turn allows us to produce this podcast, for instance. Again, that's booking.com slash Amsterdam Mamas. Don't forget to share it with your friends and family when they ask you for a hotel recommendation. And happy travels. Just a few announcements today. First, a reminder that the Great Big Easter Egg Hunt is this Saturday, the 15th of April. Registration is full, but there is a waiting list. And a reminder to decorate your bonnet for a raffle ticket. We hope to see you there. And if you can't get tickets, you can always come to the egg hunt as a volunteer. We can always use help at our events, so reach out to volunteer at amsterdam-mamas.nl for more information. And speaking of volunteers, if you like our podcast, why not join our team? We're looking for enthusiastic and friendly people to help out with everything from story scouting, co-hosting, and production. So get in touch at podcast at amsterdam-mamas.nl. We'd love to hear from you. And if podcasting isn't your thing, but you're looking for a way to get involved at Amsterdam Mamas or improve your skills or just talk to other humans who are already potty trained and can feed themselves more or less, we've got many opportunities on the team for all interests and time commitments. A few of the roles we're currently seeking include editor-in-chief for our website, researchers for articles, a social media manager, and positions on our events team. And those are just a few. We've got plenty more where they came from. And if any of these seem like a good match for you, send an email to, again, volunteer at amsterdam-mamas.nl for more information. And now it's time for our reoccurring segment where we hand the mic over to our director, Emmy McCarthy, to talk about whatever is on her mind for five minutes or less. Today's segment is called Don't Even Think About Advertising. So take it away, Emmy. Thank you, Catherine. Today I'd like to talk a little bit about something that happens in the main group that causes a lot of confusion with the community, and that's our advertising policy, or rather our no advertising at all, ever don't do it policy. We have two branches of that, and one of them is explicit advertising. We don't allow people just to put up posts saying, come like my business page, or my business is offering this deal, or I'm selling you this thing. We don't allow that at all. And the reason is, is that our community is conversation based, it's question based, it's for people to connect with each other. And we don't want them to feel that they're being sold to. We really feel as an organisation that ever since we started, parents are being sold to every day, they should at least have one space where they can come to where they're not going to be sold to. So we don't allow any advertising at all. The other thing 
and the one that trips people up most often is self-promotion. Now, self-promotion is somebody saying, oh, I can do that for you, or my business does this, or skirting into what is more of a grey area of advertising guidelines. Um, We see it almost as a, a game. They're trying to get around the no advertising, and so they say it in a different way. We know that it's often not malicious either. They genuinely want to help. We have a very caring, very helpful community and they want to offer their services to solve the problem. That's why they're in business in the first place. But it is a form of advertising. And even when they say, oh, I've got this and it's free, that's still marketing. It's still a way of promoting their business. So we know that not all the time it's intentional, but we have to apply a one rule for everybody. And that means that if we see advertising or promotion from a person, we remove them immediately from the community. It isn't a permanent ban. We're not that mean. We want people to come in. We want people to feel welcome. But because we run on Facebook, which is imperfectly set up for running communities, the only way that we can guarantee that we can get someone's attention so that we can speak to them about a problem with advertising or self-promotion is to remove them from the group. Because at that point, they will usually email us if they notice that they've been removed, if they want to come back into the community. And we have the community at amsterdam-mamas.nl email address everywhere for people to find so that they can email us and then we can talk to them about what happened, see if it was our error because you know what, we're human too and sometimes things get misinterpreted and we see a lot of advertising. We can get it wrong, not often, I have to say the admins are very good. They can sniff out advertising or self-promotion or trying to slide through the grey area at 100 paces. It's usually very obvious. But once we've taken someone out of the group and they've emailed us, we're able to have a conversation directly with them. So those are the reasons that we don't allow advertising and promotion in the groups and how we resolve issues when we do have a problem. And now for today's feature. You might remember that during our last season, we heard about a new digital magazine called Hit Eighth, an initiative by a group of writers and artists in Amsterdam to explore the ideas and issues surrounding human migration and the search for home. And as it turns out, the creators behind Hit Eighth had even bigger plans and have now launched a podcast as well. So today we're featuring an interview from a recent episode of the Hit Eighth podcast, which we thought our listeners might find interesting in which host Monica Perez-Vega talks to Christina about her many experiences with migration, including coming to the Netherlands both as a refugee from Yugoslavia and then later as an expat. So here's Monica and the Hidayat Podcast. Welcome to the Hidayat Magazine Podcast. I'm your host, Monica Perez-Vega. Hreyev is a new project launched by a group of international artists and writers based in Amsterdam. And, well, stretching its legs into London as well. And what is Hreyev, this whisper of a word? Well, it's a Welsh word that refers to a nostalgia for a home that no longer exists or that never was. And the inspiration behind this project was to hear real stories of migration in all of its forms whether it be for work, love, adventure, or refuge, we are always seeking home. So join us on this journey as we travel around the world in search of home. Shall 
Sean and I did this road trip one year where we went to central Bosnia where I grew up and then from there we went to the capital which is Sarajevo and then from Sarajevo we went to Mostar which is also in Bosnia and then we went to the coast and there was one little city that we went through and I was like stop this is what it used to look like before today we're talking to Christina She has a unique perspective of migration, having been both a refugee and an expat. She's from Yugoslavia, what is now Bosnia. She's lived in America, France, and the Netherlands. Uh, My name is Christina. I was born in uh, Yugoslavia. Um, I grew up uh, partially in Yugoslavia and partially in the States. Um, I lived in the States from three to 10. And then um, my parents moved back to Yugoslavia, made the decision to go back, even though they could have stayed in the States because they thought um, the country was um, safer um, and that the education was better. So, um, and of course, we had family there. So that was a big, um, um, a big factor in uh, their decision making. And I think as a 10 year old going back uh, and living there after living in the States, um, it was kind of, um, it was a bit shocking because of the language. Um uh, even though we spoke uh, Serbo-Croatian at home, um, it was a very different Serbo-Croatian that people actually spoke there. <laughs> and uh, so I, at 10 years old, actually kind of uh, had to relearn the language and learn how to read and write. Uh, and uh, but that that was all fine, and and it went um, it went it took a I mean, a year, uh, but it went well. But um, the the great thing about it was that the country was very, um, uh, very pure and innocent, I guess. Uh, um, uh, I don't know if I should say it like that. Um, I guess for a child, you weren't surrounded by all this consumerism. So... We um, discovered uh, this novelty of playing with kids on the street and, you know, doing, having fun and playing games that weren't um, uh, connected to, you know, a toy store or play dates were just, uh, you went to school, came back home, threw your bags uh, in the house, and then you just went out and played with kids. And that was really lovely and great. Um, and what year was that? What, when you were 10 that you went back? So I was 10 in 1984. Um, so I finished um, uh, elementary school there. And then I went to high school. And uh, when, um, the, when I was ending uh, my high school years, uh, the war broke out. And um, it first uh, started, you know, Yugoslavia um, 
consisted of um, was made up of uh, six uh, republics and two provinces. Uh, we lived in Bosnia, um, but the 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 first fightings broke out in Slovenia and then Croatia, and. Uh, Everybody just thought like, oh, you know, it's happening there, but it's never going to happen here. And uh, it's impossible. Um, but of course, it did happen. And, uh, and it was a very gradual process. Um, so uh, my parents... Um, they made the decision. Well, actually, I have an older brother, and he was um, he went into the Yugoslavian army, which every boy is um, it's required uh, when you're 18 years old. So um, when he went into the army, I guess six months into it, the war broke out. Oh man! So he was stuck. Uh, he was stuck in there, and um, it was a very I mean, if, yeah, you could imagine for my parents a very um, stressful period uh, because a lot of times we couldn't get in touch with him. We didn't know where he was. We would call where he was supposed to be. And then they would say, oh, he's somewhere around. We can't get him on the line. And then one day there was a newspaper clip that came out with him being in one of the war zones um branded with a couple of other bosnian soldiers and they got in touch with a journalist and asked him to put um like a little uh ad in the newspaper just telling their parents hey we're okay and we're here and um i don't know a couple of weeks after that he got a weekend to come home and my parents put him yeah put him on a bus to the Netherlands with another friend. Yeah. So after, after a year, um, uh, this was when there was no fighting in Bosnia. So after a year, the war broke out in Bosnia and my mom and I left and my dad stayed, um, kind of thinking he wants to, this is just temporary. It's going to be a month. Uh, he's going to hold on to our apartment and his job. And um, well, within a week that we left, uh, he had to leave the city um, because fightings broke out. And then it took my dad a year after that to reconnect with us. In the meantime, my mom and I reconnected with my brother in the Netherlands and then a year later, my dad came and, uh, um, yeah, life continued in the Netherlands for us. When you said it took your dad a year to reconnect, why? What happened? Because all the borders were closed. Um, I mean, it was full on war. Where was he? Where, where did he stay? Uh, well, he was uh, first uh, in the city that we lived. And then, um, well, we were all basically Yugoslavians. And then when um, this whole national stuff started popping up, uh, you know, people were kind of labeled a certain nationality. Um, and uh, they uh, turned out that they were, my parents were different nationalities. Um, so 
what happened to people that were different in a marriage with different nationalities, uh, they were, if you didn't choose a side yourself, uh, people were kind of used as prisoners. Um, and uh, the, the night before my mom and I left, uh, we had a phone call from a family friend telling my dad, um, you guys need to leave because you're on the list. Uh, and this was a list of people that were going to be prisoners of war. And so that's when my mom and I, we basically, I guess we got on the last bus leaving the city. Um, and after that, all of the all of the um, borders were closed. Um, and this is not just the borders of Bosnia. I mean, each city like closed, shut off. And um, so my dad uh, left uh, the, the town that we lived in, and then he went into a village where his sister lived. So at least to be with family. And then, um, uh, you know, uh, there... Um, I guess that village had was swapped with another village. And I mean, it took, uh, took him basically a year to, to get the right to leave or to find a way to leave. And, um, and he was already older. So um, he um, uh, kind of fell into the elderly category. <laughs> And um, which was good because he didn't, he wasn't forced to go and fight for anybody. Uh, so why the Netherlands? Um, because my dad had uh, kind of connections, basically. My dad had a friend who's, uh, he wanted to, he had family in the Netherlands and he was sending his sons to the Netherlands. And um, uh, he he offered it to my dad and said, hey, I'm sending my sons. Uh, you should have your son go with them. So um, and the Netherlands was, um, I mean, one of the better European countries for refugees at the time. They were very organized. They had uh, refugee centers set up. Um, if you came to the Netherlands, you kind of already went um, immediately into a process of interviews and um, um, uh, basically um, being um, vetted, you know, for um, uh, your, your story and why and what and but because there was, because um, the war became full blown in the whole country, basically anybody that came from the former Yugoslavia, especially from the Netherlands, um, uh, got papers. And once I think once you have a family member uh, somewhere, then that allows that family member to bring other family members um, to be reunited. And um, yeah, I think we were really, really lucky to come to the Netherlands. Um, the moment we um, we came, um, I think it took maybe, yeah, from the day we came in, it took us, um, my mom and I, my brother was there longer, it took him longer, but it took us seven months um, from the beginning to the end, basically to to get papers and then start the reintegration process. 
And so you were, you said at the end of high school, so you must have had some friends also get displaced or stay behind. And do you know what happened to them or yeah. made reconnected with them? Yes. Yes. Um, some people stayed. Um, some people left. We the, the people that left, we kind of reconnected immediately and um, stayed in contact by writing letters to each other. Um, uh, I had a couple of friends in Germany, um, one person that went to Denmark. Um, the people that went to Denmark were actually um, uh, put on a plane and um, they had to go back to Croatia because a lot of people, what happened is they left Bosnia through Croatia and then either hopped on a plane or a train or a bus or whatever. And, um, uh, but it turned out if you went through another country or were already somehow maybe registered in a country, you were not allowed to go to a second country. And, um, one of my friends fell into that category of people that had to go back to Croatia. Um, but then I think eventually she ended up going to the States. Um, of all of my friends uh, that I was very close with, um, if people, um, the ones that stayed during the war, they all left after the war. So I have basically no friends that stayed there. Like all of my very good high school friends ended up in the States or Italy. Um, I had a couple that were in Germany, but they also ended up going to the States. You've gone back. I know you guys went to Croatia a couple years ago for summer vacation. What was it like to go back? Uh, well, I've been back to Bosnia a couple of times. Um, and the first time I went back, it was just really great to be back and to see um uh, the people that were still there, um, you kind of, um, I was just happy that the war ended and um, I was happy to reconnect with the, with, with the people and um, just see everything. But the second time I went back, I think reality hits um, and then you start seeing beyond, you know, just that initial contact with people. You kind of see how, um, what the war did, uh, how destructed the country um, is, was, um, how people are living now, people start sharing their war stories. And it's actually really, it's pretty heavy to go down there. Um, uh, so I really haven't been to Bosnia, um, or to the city that I grew up in for for a very long time. Um, I've been to Croatia several times to the coast because it's just a little bit, um, you still get a little bit of the, the country without getting into the, um, the war stories. And um, yeah. Do you remember like before the war really came to your city or maybe before even it broke out, like what were some of the, alarm bells that went off i'm thinking now watching what's going on in the world are there any parallels any red flags yeah well the parallels that i see are the rise of nationalism um yugoslavia was a communist country um since uh, the second world war um uh 
it was led by Tito. And uh, Tito was the president until he died, uh, until the early 80s. And he basically held the country together. And um, uh, I was I was a little bit too young to understand, you know, the whole politics and like for everybody who grew up in Yugoslavia, Tito was a great person. Uh, you were a little bit brainwashed, you know, to believe that he, you know, pulled Yugoslavia through the Second World War. We beat the Nazis and, you know, and we are such a great country because we have six republics and two um, provinces and six different nationalities. Uh, everybody believed in this brotherhood and unity. It was a little bit utopian, I think, now looking back. But for kids, it was great because we, um, I don't know, it was a great idea, right? Um, but, um, you know, I hear stories now from from the older generations. And basically, if you didn't support that, you... Um, but but wanted to be, you know, be proud of your uh, national identity and, you know, go to church or um, go to the mosque and, and um, uh, be religious. Uh, you didn't really have a lot of prospects uh, in um, uh, progressing in society, you know, like uh, people that were that were truly communist, uh, they, they came first, and then everybody else came second. Um, it was a little bit like that. But um, yeah, you know, even if you're going to the doctor, you know, um, like you could wait all day, or you could bring a basket of goodies, you know, and you could get in in five minutes. Yeah, I mean, so it was a communist country. And then the end of the 80s, um, the country went towards a multi-party system. So this was the first time in so many years that people could actually pick a party and vote. And um, um, But the parties that were, that were being formed were mostly national parties. You know, so so this whole national, there was a whole awakening of of these nationalist feelings that weren't there before, and and um, it's I think it's a dangerous thing to play with, and and you see it now, you know, with the whole populism and the rise of uh, nationalism, um, that that uh, similarity kind of makes me cringe a little bit. But it was sort of launched because of Tito's death. I think it kind of all went downhill after that. I mean, it was maybe downhill even before that, but he kind of held, you know, the group together. And and then after that, um, I think every other year there was a new president and each um, from a different republic. And what happened is that republic then kind of filtered all the money through that republic and um, it wasn't equally spread out. Um, and there were parts of, of former Yugoslavia that were always uh, last to be reached, um, like um, in the South. Um, yeah, lots of factors. But of course, uh, media, you know, we had, a, we only had two channels. And everybody listened to the news. 
And uh, uh, at a certain point, the news became corrupt, you know, kind of things weren't making sense, uh, things were happening or reported in a different way than they were actually happening. And then we started uh, getting uh, alternative uh, radio channels where you would hear different stories. So it, it came to a point where people, maybe like now with all the fake news and everything, it's like, what's real? What is really happening? What is uh, like you didn't know what to believe, who to believe? Um, and, uh, and, and there was a little bit of that watching the news because Bosnia was in the news every single day. And I remember um, maybe a couple of years into the war, my city was on TV and they were reporting and showing people that we knew. And um, it's these these war situations are very complicated. They're not black and white, you know. So this this one minute story that they had, we were all like, that doesn't make sense. You know, like none of it made sense what was reported. But I guess as a foreigner coming in, that's what you see. But there's a whole history behind that black and white story that you just told that makes it very, you know, these are people and every person has a story, a thousand people, a thousand stories. So... The war in our city, it was caused by maybe 1% of the people and like 99% of the other people were against it. But you are caught up into it. And, um, and all everybody wants to do is just survive, right? There's nothing functioning, you can't go to the bank to get money to go buy bread, or, you know, you don't have water, you don't have electricity, you can't call anybody, you are in a situation where it's just survival mode. Yeah. So, and then to think about all this other stuff that's happening, uh, you know, who who knows what's happening? So then what? So yeah, so you made it to the Netherlands, you got your um, passport, and you're now how old? Uh, I was 18. Well, we got a residency permit. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so um, I started uh, learning Dutch. Um, I translated my high school diploma. And uh, based on how I translated it, uh, I was able to go to college, uh, like a technical college. Uh, so I chose to do... Um, uh, to go into bio biochemistry um and uh, um uh, and what, just sorry yeah. to interrupt what city were you living in at the time uh, i was living in a in a small town called hrunlo it's in the eastern part of the country but i went to school in enschede um and uh yeah finished school uh, got a job in the western part of the country in leiden and I worked there for seven years and lived there. Um, and I met my husband, and we, uh, who was American. And uh, when we first met early in our relationship, he said, Hey, one day I want to go back to the States. So I said, Oh, I would really like that because I lived in the States when I was little. So uh, I wasn't opposed to it. I mean, it wasn't anything to think about that early in a relationship. But I thought, okay, that's, that's nothing 
that's nothing to be afraid of from my side. Like if we ever get into a serious relationship, I would, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to going to the States. So, um, so anyway, we got married. Um, and uh, we both uh, in 2005 left our jobs and uh, went on a an amazing road trip in the States. Um, started on the East Coast, uh, uh, finished on the West Coast. It took four months, approximately. And wow. uh, we yeah, we ended up in Portland. And we're really happy we did that because the moment we came in Portland, we started a family. So um, it was kind of perfect timing that we did the road trip because I don't know now, like taking four or six months off of, you know, school or work or um, I don't think it would be as easy, I guess. So um, and that was that was uh, that was a different type of um immigration than going to the Netherlands right because we were kind of in control of what we were doing we planned it um did the paperwork um lots of lots of forms uh, that we filled in but uh it all went pretty smooth and it was fun So you guys then were in Portland for how long and what brought you back? Yeah, seven years. And um, we loved Portland, had a great time, um, uh, had our little family there. Um, and then, yeah, my husband got an offer to start um, to to do some work in Europe and um it was initially only for a year. And yeah, we thought, great, you know, why not? We were, yeah, very open to it. And just thought, hey, why not? We're gonna go for a year, we'll be back in a year. Um, uh, the kids are still small. Um, and uh, it was kind of being taken care of by the company. So so we went for it. And of course, one year became two. And then um, so we went to France initially. And then we were at the point to go back to the States and then got an offer to come to the Netherlands. And now we're back here. And we've been here for almost three years now, believe it or not. <laughs> mm -hmm. I guess we'll always be open to moving um but after moving so many times i think we know what is a good fit and what is not and how to do it and how to do it better next time and what to look out for what not to do what to do um but i think right now we we feel very comfortable here the the kids are comfortable at school um sean's work is is going great so yeah. It's interesting that you've seen both perspectives of migration. Right. Because I think one of the things that our goal with Hedayeth is to sort of bridge these types of stories and show the commonalities, like an expat versus a refugee. What do we have in common and how can we connect in that way? Um, but you've been on both sides. 
Well, I think the difference is that when you are a refugee, you are not in control of what's happening and you are dependent on a lot of factors. Um, you, you depend on the country that you are coming into, if you are going to be welcomed or not, if you could stay there or not, um, if you are immigrating and you made the decision to do it, um, either by, you know, taking um, the leap of faith and just going and looking for a job or moving with an employer, you you have the security of um, of being in control of it and and knowing what you're doing and how you're doing it and uh, the paperwork is very different than than yeah being a refugee and um, and and the thing is um, um, I think when you're a refugee you you don't have this oh, well, if it doesn't work out, I'll just go back to where I came from. Right, of course, yeah. And you you don't have that luxury of yeah. thinking like that. Right. I think a lot has to also do with how um, countries um, set up their policies um, in accepting, you know, others, um, some countries do a better job than others. Um, I don't know. I always think that we hear a lot of unsuccessful stories, but we don't hear a lot of successful stories of refugees. And we don't really hear about the human side of it. Um, it's always reported um, by somebody else, but not through the people that are actually going through the agonies. And, um, and I think, um, I think if we put a more human side to it, that people um, will be more understanding, um, because you don't know what's going to happen anywhere. I mean, you could be a refugee tomorrow, you don't know. I think we all as, as human beings need to be um, a little bit more acceptive of what's happening to other people and, and, you know, show our human side more. You can find the Hraith podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast app. And you can find their digital magazine at their website, hraithmagazine.com. Hraith is also hosting a night of poetry, storytelling, and cocktails in Amsterdam on Saturday, May 6, 2017 at Labyrinth Bar. To attend or participate, you can find more details at their website, which is spelled H-I-R-A-E-T-H magazine.com. That's all for this episode. To comment on this or any episode, head on over to the Amsterdam Mamas podcast Facebook page to join or start a conversation. We'd like to thank Hraith for sharing their content with us today. And thank you to Catherine Ninnis for editing this episode, Roberta Borgognoni for transcription help, and the Amsterdam Mamas team and our director, Emmy McCarthy, for their support. 
And mostly thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back. 